Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. I'm your host, Tom Mueller. On this podcast, we talk about all things crisis management, and we do that through stories, interviews, and lessons learned from experienced crisis leaders. With me is my co-host, Mark Mullen. Mark, welcome. Hi, Tom. Happy to be here. And today we have a very special guest uh, with us for the podcast, and she is Anita Perry. Anita is a longtime government and public affairs manager based in Calgary, Canada. She recently retired as vice president of one of the largest energy companies in Canada and now serves on a board of directors for a mining company in Canada and does consulting work as well. So Anita, we're very happy to have you with us. Thanks for joining. Hey, Tom and Mark, thanks so much for having me. So Anita, if you are you know, walking into a cocktail party and you need to introduce yourself to people who don't know you, um, what would be that introduction? What's your story? I, uh, I've worked my entire career in communications. I've worked on the government side, I've worked in the corporate side, and I worked in the nonprofit side. So um, all of my roles have always been to do with communications or government relations, public affairs. So that's my whole career. I worked for large companies, small companies, government agency, and uh, then ended all of that and decided that I wanted to do something different and now serve on a board of directors. I've served on a few boards of directors, but uh, today I'm active on one board of directors as a director. What would you say was the the highlight of your career in terms of, you know, crisis management and crisis communications? I don't know if there was a if there was a high point, but having served on more than thirty five active incident crisis management events, I'll tell you they were all different. And I think uh, the highlight was maybe that I that I liked doing it. And uh, you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in communication, and in a crisis, everybody needs communication. So I think that would be the highlight. Kind of funny to call it highlights when you're all responding to crisis. Maybe the question should be, what was the best of the worst? The best of the worst um, was probably one where the media attention died very quickly. And that was the best because mm-hmm. we obviously managed it well because it was it was a big incident. Interesting. Was that a remote incident? It was it was an environmental incident, yes. Very remote or remote, however, a lot of attention. So Anita, just drilling in on that point just a moment, uh, because you said you thought you handled it really well. What was it about that response as you think about it that you thought went really well? We had a holding statement out very quickly. So we wrote our own story rather than somebody writing it for us. Number two was we were we were well prepared. We had a really good uh, communication plan, and we also had the relationships already developed. So I, I can't think of one relationship that was missing. So, you know, we were quick to get to people about the incident. 
So, Anita, I know one of the things you're passionate about these days is serving on uh, boards of directors. And that's an experience that relatively few people get in their careers and lifetimes. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, your experience around working on boards in particular, you know, what's the focus on crisis management or what should it be? You know, serving on the board of directors for a small mining company that had, you know, yet to begin construction or production, obviously, one would think, you know, why do you need crisis management? You have no activity and why should it be a priority? You're really dealing with permitting, funding, engineering, and those kinds of things. But I learned that setting up the elements of crisis management is a very long process. And I learned that in working for a very large company. Um, it's a long process, but if it's done right, it's gonna pay off in spades once activity begins. So the early work gets management's heads around crisis management. And in a, you know, a small company, as a member of a board of directors, you're fairly involved in, in management, involved or informed, I should say. Uh, you don't want to be involved in the management. And so, you know, I mean, if the board of directors come with their own sets of expertise and, and mine was in, in my career and my skills. And so, you know, early on, I said, I know we don't have activity yet, but we really need an incident plan. We really need a management plan and a communication plan. And, and the other thing with small companies and what people kind of forget is that there are many more small natural resource companies than there are large natural resource companies, whether it be forestry, mining, oil and gas, etc. And so there, there's a lot of them. They don't have huge, big crisis teams or even big uh, management teams. So it's a kind of an all hands-on. And that's what I've enjoyed as a board member of a small mining company is you get to help them out and you get to be involved. And so, you know, I put my hand up and said, I can help get a crisis management plan started, get crisis communication started. And so that's, that's what I did. You know, a few key elements for those early days for a small company is you have to have identified personnel and roles that could serve on a crisis management because you're going to start activity someday and you're not going to start activity with a fully complemented crisis capable team. So identify the personnel and the roles that will serve on the crisis. The other thing was um, that you can do early in a small company is make sure that you have accurate contact information of all those government people, all the emergency providers, your neighbors, your stakeholders, make sure you've got those lists ready because you're going to call on them for support or you're going to have to, you know, notify them. And, you know, a basic strong communication plan and identification of those authorized spokespersons is incredibly important as well. Somebody's going to have to talk and you're probably not going to have an experienced media relations person on site. So Anita, the the challenge I think today for directors in, in companies, you know, is figuring out, you know, how to influence what's happening in the companies and asking the right questions, poking around a little bit to identify 
weaknesses. Uh, we see that with ransomware issues now where boards are becoming much more engaged with management around those types of cyber crime and preparedness issues. You know, as you think back on your experience there, how, how much of a challenge is it identifying those kinds of issues for directors? I don't think it's a big difficulty identifying the issues, but what what you bring is that early work gets management's head around crisis management because they may not be thinking about crisis management because they're saying, well, we don't have any activity, but you have to get it in place. So, you know, as a board member, we have time to, to sit back because we're not dealing with the minutiae for the day. And, you know, we're bringing another perspective for that management team, though they have the experience of what's actually happening on site. So the board members is that oversight again. And one of the critical elements today, as you said, you know, in the environment that we live in, you have to have credible plans in place so that in the event of a crisis, there is going to be a crisis. I don't know what it's going to be, but there is going to be one, you know, that you have things in place and that you're trustworthy. So, you know, board members on these small boards, I think, can influence management to think about crisis, to think about environmental issues. That was the role that I think our boards are playing. Anita, if I could ask you a quick question. You're talking about a a board level involvement that to me is really interesting because you've talked about the crisis management plan and having the input to get the the board and the actual organization to begin thinking about crisis management. But on top of that, you're the crisis communicator. So you're you're basically embodying crisis management plan and a crisis communications plan. Um, do you see those always working well together or do you see a danger of having a diversion between one and the other? No, I see them working well together in my experience. And I, I'm a firm believer in how well they can work together and should work together. One of the, the other issues I kind of wanted to, to chat with you about today, Anita, was, you know, working with management. And sometimes, you know, when we're involved in a crisis response, or maybe it's just a deep issues management, but you, you end up working with difficult people or managers who are just abrasive, not good listeners, I wonder if you have had any of that type of experience over your career and what your advice would be for getting on with difficult managers. Yeah, I have dealt with a few difficult incident managers in my career and in in those uh, events that I was involved in. I look back, I really believe that the difficult incident commander or anyone on that incident team, actually, I really think that it's it was a lack of confidence rather than being difficult. And it played out in being, you know, a difficult person because obviously they have skill to be the incident commander, but it's a lack of confidence. So I think, you know, a strong crisis or incident management plan that's practiced and that's understood goes a long way to providing that confidence to the incident commander. And the other thing that I noticed too was, you know, in exceptional circumstances, deviating from the management plan could be necessary, but I can't think of an incident management experience of mine that warranted the commander on their own to deviate from the plan. That's when we had trouble. And also I've noticed that 
by definition, when we're doing crisis response, we're working under stress. And a lot of times people handle stress really differently. So I think what you're describing is some of what walks in there. It's not just confidence. It's they're now under stress and they have to do something they don't do every day. Yeah. And, you know, I, I found, so I was always on the communication side of an incident management, right? And mm -hmm. I found that in the thick of things, my team members, who were all communications professionals, could provide confidence to the incident manager when they had a working relationship ahead of time, ahead of the crisis with that incident commander. So a specific staff member who on their daily work worked closely with that person in whatever they did in their daily work. I tried to get that team member of mine in to work with that commander because there was a trust, there was confidence, and the communications was so incredibly important because they're managing inside the company and they're worried about what's going outside on outside the company. So my trick was to put whichever one of my staff knew that incident commander from their daily work, and it seemed to help. Yeah, that's it's fascinating. I think there's a saying in the crisis management world that says, you know, the day of the crisis is not the day you want to be meeting your incident commander. You want to have some kind of an established relationship there. And I, I think back to my deployment out during Deepwater Horizon and uh, into New Orleans, and I met the company's overall commander for that response when he turned up in the command post that day. And that's kind of a terrifying thing when you're working a very large incident, and now you're working with a senior executive or incident commander who you've not worked with before. You don't have that established credibility yet. You've got to earn it. It just adds a lot more stress and pressure. So your point about you know putting people who know that incident commander in to work with them is a is a very uh, a good one in my view because it just it helps build that comfort level and confidence. I was going to say, and you know it 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 always worked in my case, but you know I recall one commander you know, who tried to play almost everybody's role. What happened? He burned out in, you know, a few hours. In a subsequent incident management situation all over again, that commander was in the room. And I'm I'm really happy that his supervisor put him back in the chair because he was skilled. Put that commander, but this time he was not playing the commander role. He was playing a different role and he was awesome. So he, you know what? He just wasn't, he just wasn't the one to be the commander. At that point in his career. Yep. Right. He had to to learn a bit, to build the skill sets, the confidence, you know, the knowledge and awareness of how this whole response system works. Right. Everybody has a role to do if you're working in incident command system, for example. And that's part of the challenge of a good manager or incident commander is letting people do their jobs. Yeah. So Anita, that raises another question for me is, you know, when you think about your team, people you've worked with and developed over your career, you know, how do you, how do you build that confidence in those employees so that they feel comfortable stepping up and leading in a crisis as opposed to just, you know, sort of showing up to be told what to do? I really believe that it's, it's, uh, it's in the skill set, you know, I think they have to be a team player. They have to have confidence in their skills. And that's where 
you as a leader can help them have some confidence in their skills. They have to have a strong desire to learn. I had some who wanted to be in right away. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. And, you know, because they just had a strong desire to learn. (laughs) My experience is that fades over the course of one's career, but... But, you know, the other thing was, was guide them to be inquisitive and resourceful. So when you get into an incident command situation, you don't want to be the person asking, interrupting, asking questions. Well, what's this? What's that? What's this? You know, asking all those questions. You have to be inquisitive. But what I also wanted them to do was to be resourceful. So I told them, don't ask your question if it's going to interrupt things. This is a crisis. People are tense. Keep it to yourself or you have your laptop, find the answer, go online and find the answer, either whether it's inside the company or outside the company, but, you know, answer your own question and find that solution and help with the solution rather than just sitting there asking questions. But the other one was a tough one. And this was be available and stay focused on the task at hand. Call your family. I'm not going to be home for 12 hours. Uh, I need to be focused on this. It's part of my job and I want to do it. So that was incredibly important. But also tell me if you can't do it. And, you know, I'll put somebody else in the chair. So those were some of the things that I think I I tried to work with my team on. Well, often it, it seems like, you know, people aren't sure if they could do it or not. And, you know, I'm just, I'm recalling an experience that we're working an emergency incident. And I had one particular person kept coming to me and bringing problems. And Mm -hmm. every time they showed up in front of me, they were bringing me a problem Mm -hmm. and asking me, what was I going to do to fix this problem that they had identified? In fact, what I needed was a solution, right? If you've got a problem, go find me a solution and then bring it together. Right. And this person wasn't able to make that connection. And it, you know, I ended up just demobilizing that person fairly quickly because they just didn't have the right mindset to be in crisis at that point in their career, right? So your your point about, uh, you know, answering those questions and being productive, don't bring me problems. Yeah, but, you know, I've seen people get emotional and I don't, you know, we say we're, we're in a culture where don't say they're failing. They're emotional. Well, you know what? It should be viewed as a failure if they can't, especially in the crisis environment, if they can't do it, it's a failure in that environment. It's not a failure in the person. You know, one of my most competent and skilled communicators ever who worked for me early in their career asked to not be a participant in an incident or crisis environment. I recognized, you know, that their skill was in the back room as an incredible and excellent writer. So, you know, fear of failure was at play there, but I didn't put them in that situation because that's not a time to set somebody up to be ridiculed or to be, you know, to really break down. So I think we have to look at that and we can say, you know, I, I've had I've had CEOs who I counseled to not be the spokesperson because they just, there was no way they were going to do it. And be an effective communicator, you mean. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Great CEO. 
<laughs> this whole conversation goes back to as you were talking about even the incident commander who lacked confidence so from the start through each of these conversations we're really back to one of the core tenets of incident command which is you always put the most qualified person in the best position for them and this is all part of deciding who fits where and and recognizing experience recognizing temperament all of that folds in but i think what's sometimes missing in that and this is back to your comment about you know somebody failed um, all of all of incident command is built around if somebody can do your job better, let them do the job. It's too important that it be done right to try to hold on to something. And and along with it, you have to have a sense of this. It's not a failure that you get moved over to be a good writer. We need a good writer. And you're the best we got. Anita, um, as you think about effective leaders that you've worked with, whether incident commanders or corporate executives, what would you say are the the characteristics that help them to be successful in that environment, particularly in those high stress environments? Any any particular sort of incident commanders that that might come to mind, and what you thought they did really well? You know, somebody who was a good listener, and somebody who was calm, and you know, stuck to the plan and and stayed with it and saw it through, but also exuded a personality where people could speak up. And, you know, because an, an incident command situation can be very tense, as you know, and, you know, you're going to follow the rule and this person talks and this one's reporting and that one's reporting. And then you've got a CEO on the phone what demanding to know what's going on at all times. So to me, it's really somebody who is, exudes confidence and calm, and that's it. And just because somebody doesn't exude confidence and calm doesn't mean they're a bad leader, but they're just probably not a really great incident command person. I had somebody ask me, I was at a training a couple of weeks ago, and um, one of the leadership of the organization I was training asked me, based on your experiences, which was the most embarrassing moment that you faced? And I know that's a left field question, but as well as what's been best, what was the one thing that you just thought, I never want that to happen again? Not being prepared, not having, not having accurate contact information at the ready. That mm. is probably my most embarrassing. Because everything hinges on that, doesn't it? You're Absolutely. Talk about what you're doing if you don't remember who to talk to. Absolutely. Yeah, Mark, when I think about that question, um, the phrase that comes to my mind is uh, quotes I'd like to have back. So those just sort of ill-timed things that you say to a reporter in a high-stress situation that prove to be inaccurate or just not the right thing to say at that point in time. And those things happen in those high-stress situations, right? I'll just have a chapter in my book that I will call that quotes I'd like to have back <laughs> and the storylines behind them. I had to say my most embarrassing point was all the times that the communicators would develop content and take it up for unified commanders and command review. And it would come back with all the misspellings circled. It's just so embarrassing when you try to do your best work and you don't spell words right. Not to mention it just threw you back in the approval process. Well, that's, that raises another interesting point here, Mark, just around the approval process, which as we know is one of those things that 
if it doesn't go well, can really hamper communications getting out in a timely fashion. Anita, I'm wondering in, in your experience, if you've seen situations where that approval process wasn't working and how you dealt with that or fixed that, have you seen that? Yes, absolutely. And it all hinged on the lawyer who was at the table every time. And the ones that went smoothly were not necessarily the most experienced lawyer, but a lawyer who was confident and who respected the communications role, respected the communications role. Often at an incident command table, that's just the PR person. But when you had a lawyer who respected what you as the communicator do, and they were quick to approve and had confidence to approve, all was awesome. And I can, I can, I can visualize the great days of having a good lawyer. And, uh, you know, the others, again, nothing to say about their skill, but it was personality. Again, it was the type of person who said, well, I think we should change this. We should change that. We should wait. We should change this. Or did not really value the importance of fast communications. How quickly could you identify which one you were getting? Which lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> Real quick. <laughs> Try to control the body language. <laughs> okay. I, I liked them all, but some were just a lot quicker than others. Right. Again, that sometimes they came in and basically they didn't either didn't understand or didn't respect the PIO role. Yeah. Uh, how how would you address that with an attorney that wasn't and basically wasn't going to let you do your job. What I really focused on then was the consequences of them not letting me do my job. And I was very quick to tell them what might happen if they didn't let me do my job. I'm curious on what you told them. <laughs> I would tell them that it's going to be a media storm. And when asked why we didn't get a statement out fast enough, I will tell them why we didn't get a statement out fast enough. First, last name, and middle initial. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, these are huge challenges in terms of just getting through the approval process. And, you know, for larger corporations, there's always going to be an attorney at the table or near the table somewhere reviewing things. When you're in a unified command situation, now working with state and federal agencies in a joint information center, it becomes a whole nother animal to have a lawyer sitting there or trying to divert the approval process through a legal team. Anita, any experience with that in your in your career? And having to get another side other than those in your room? Yeah, or through unified command. Um, yeah, I do have experience with that. But again, you know, it 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 really comes down to identifying yourself, you know, even maybe even before the meeting gets rolling to all of those parties involved and making sure, though, that people know who is the sign off, who's the signature and what their roles are. Most of those situations, you needed both sides to approve the statement. So work with both sides at the same time. Don't wait for one or the other because you're not going to have that many changes and have a runner. I would always have one of my staff running to the other side or get them on the phone and say, this is what we're going to say. 
do you have any issues? So I did have experience with that. But again, it's it's honestly, it's making sure they know who you are before you need them. And by oh. that, protecting your organization's role in that response. Absolutely. Anita, I think we'll kind of wrap it up here. It's been a really fun conversation. But before we do that, just wanted to ask for your advice for people out there in you know younger staff, perhaps in different roles who want to develop those leadership skills in crisis. What are some things they can do to start building their experience and to prepare themselves to be effective in a crisis situation? You know, I suggest getting their colleagues together, you know, for short incident training sessions, maybe once a month, get a realistic example and talk it out and play the roles and, you know, maybe half an hour, but just keeping it fresh in their minds, you know, and keep themselves also, though, keep themselves informed about what critics of their company, whether it's the media or special interest group, are saying about them. So that they're somewhat ready or they can offer their view to their leaders, you know, that that they know what's going on and that they know what crisis information is. The other thing that I did as a team leader, and I had various colleagues on the executive team, could never figure out why we did it. But anyway, we would always have the rolling news channel on in our office and we had the volume off, but we always had the rolling news on. And um, I fostered an environment of opinion. So we commented on everything from sports to domestic issues to whatever. (laughs) We would just come and we would talk. And, you know, I personally learned a ton from that because I observed my team members and how engaged they were. And we would solve everybody else's crisis by just watching and listening. And, you know, I definitely learned what my biases and my blind spots were. So it was when I think back to the learning and how much fun it was and what how it fostered team, you know, but we'd have that rolling news channel on every day, all day. And uh, so we knew what was going on. So you have to be current. And that's what I would tell young people in communications is you have to know what's going on. You, you just have to be interested in the news and see what other people are doing and know who your critics are and know who your friends are. All right. Anita Perry, thank you so much for for taking time to join us today on the Leading in a Crisis podcast. And for those of you listening, we hope you'll hit that subscribe button and come back and join us often for future episodes. Thanks, Tom and Mark. Thank you. 